This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others, and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Hey friends, and welcome to the Worth Your Time podcast. I'm your host, Erica Anderson. I'm a Christian freelance writer, mom of two littles, and I'm passionate about helping you live out your best and deepest faith in everyday life. On this podcast, you'll hear from inspiring women, moms, and ministry leaders, authors, and more. Those on mission for God with a message to inspire you in your Christian walk, wherever that may be. Each month, I send out interviews, tips, book reviews, and exclusive giveaways to my email list. If you'd like to receive these things, just head to my website, ericaanderson.com, and sign up. My new book, Reason to Return, Why Women Need the Church and the Church Needs Women, comes out this January, and I want you to be the first to know all the details. Enjoy the show. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking this call. Okay, so I guess my first question to you is just, what was your reaction when you heard the news that uh, Roe v. Wade might be um, overturned? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I, like so many other people in the pro-life movement, um, am hopeful that that leak represents, you know, the the draft that was leaked represents what the actual decision will be. I mean, of course, we need to be cautious with interpreting anything because, you know, it, it certainly is not a final draft, but, um, but I was very encouraged that um, you know, maybe finally the justices and the Supreme Court in general are going to sort of catch our laws up with where science and medicine has come over the last 50 years. So, um, you know, we as an organization are, are very hopeful that um, this discussion now will be able to be had in the states um, to really discuss, you know, what does constitute healthcare for women and their children. And it certainly is not abortion. So, um, you know, we're ready to um, defend women and their children at every state, <laughs> you know, if, uh, if given that opportunity. So are you guys going to be putting out a statement at all? Um, so we did put out a very brief statement um, just on social media, just that basically what I just said, um, you know, just wanting to be cautious again, because we don't know what the final decision is going to be. So, um, but we're certainly very encouraged by um, what the majority opinion appears to be at this point in time. Um, okay. So what I, you know, one of the main reasons I, I reached out to you is just because, you know, as this has happened, like we're hearing all this scaremongering all over social media about Absolutely. Um, what's going to be criminalized. And, and the, one of the biggest ones I hear is ectopic pregnancy treatment. And then um, also people are saying, oh, it's possible that miscarriages could be criminalized in some way. Um, now, there was some weird language in a bill in Missouri. And I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. But can you just speak to that? Like, is that true? Is it possible? Like, how can we clear this up for people? Absolutely. So I'm not familiar with the Missouri bill, you know, the particulars of the Missouri bill, but I've seen the same thing that you have. And Unfortunately, this this fear mongering is being perpetuated not just on social media, but even by major medical organizations like the American College of OBGYN. Um, ACOG put out a statement uh, within the last couple of months talking about state restrictions. You know, this was before the, the draft opinion was leaked, but talking about state abortion restrictions and how this could limit women's access to care for um, ectopic pregnancies. 
and nothing could be further from the truth. And so I think it is very important that we clear this up, that treating an ectopic pregnancy, treating a miscarriage, neither one of them are the same as abortion. And there is not to my knowledge, a single state law on the books or even currently proposed that would limit a physician's ability to care for these conditions. So, um, you know, what might be restricted would be using a certain medical procedure, such as a DNC or a DNE, to end the life of a living child in utero. Um, but at least all of the state bills that I have seen on this very clearly um, state that there, um, th th these restrictions would not apply to a situation where there's not a living fetus. So in a situation where a miscarriage has already occurred, um, and also, I think every state restriction, again, that I'm aware of has an exception for the life of the mother, which is the appropriate thing. And that is Applog's stance, um, most certainly, is that um, there are situations in which we have to prematurely separate the mother and her preborn child in order to save the life of the mother. But that in no way is an abortion because the only intent of an abortion is to end the life of that preborn child. In fact, if you look at um, the uh, one of the opinions in the Carhartt v. Gonzalez case, the partial birth abortion ban um, in the U.S., it very clearly states that the purpose of an abortion is to produce a dead fetus. And so um, that's what delineates an abortion. Treating an ectopic pregnancy, treating a miscarriage is in no way an abortion. And, and again, state laws, as currently proposed, will not restrict that in any way. Women will have access to care. And one of the ways that we can know for sure that this is the case is because there are thousands of Catholic hospitals across this country that do not allow abortions. And yet women can receive treatment for ectopic pregnancies and miscarriage at all of those hospitals. Um, I did my residency training at a Catholic hospital where we did not perform abortions. I've never performed an abortion my entire career. And I've been in practice now for um, 13 years, you know, out on my own, out of residency. So, and yet I've treated hundreds of women with ectopic pregnancies. I've treated probably thousands of women with miscarriages. Um, and so in no way would a, a law that restricts um, abortions, the ending of a preborn life will not impact our ability to manage miscarriage and ectopic pregnancy. And I think it's really damaging um, for women to hear that because then, like you said, it's fear mongering. It's, it's instilling this fear and then they're not going to be able to access life-saving care if abortion is restricted in their state. And the other, the other damage that I see this doing for women, this, this sort of dialogue um, is that then women who have been treated in the past for ectopic pregnancies or women who have been treated for miscarriage in, in speaking in this way about those treatments and, and likening them to abortions, those women then are going to be living with guilt potentially that they've had an abortion when they actually haven't. And so I think it's very important, especially for us as medical professionals to um, speak very clearly and truthfully about what it is that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, when you mentioned the life of the mother situation, that mm -hmm. is very, um, oh, I see, are we, um, are you with someone named Kate Connolly? Is she trying to enter the room? 
oh, you know what? She's our media person. And so, and she was out last week, but she was included on that email thread. So she may just be, I'll just text her and tell her we're okay. good. Oh. I was going to say, she can come in if she wants. It doesn't matter. Okay. She's, oh, you know what? She just texted and said she's trying to get in on the Google call, trying to get on your call, but not let in yet. Try to zoom now. Okay. You want um, me to put her in? Sure. Okay. Okay. That's totally fine with me. I just was, didn't want to let a stranger in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no worries. Hey, Kate. Hi. <laughs> I was on the wrong link. I was like, Google. Oh, no worries. Yeah, it's it confusing because it'll, like, Google creates an automatic Google calendar, Google Meet, and that's oh, not yeah. Right. Um, okay, yeah, we were just going through the questions. Um, so um, for the for the life of the mother, now that you know, they bring that up all the time, but that's very rare. I mean, how rare would you say it is? And also, um, what kind of like what's an example of a situation where that would be necessary? Yeah, that's a great question. So. You know, there are a few different conditions that that legitimately, you know, that are related to pregnancy that legitimately do pose a risk to the life of the mother. Thankfully, that that list of conditions is rapidly shrinking. It's smaller now even than it was when I began my residency in 2005. So, um, you know, as medical science and, and our ability to care for different conditions um, advances, then thankfully that list of conditions where we need to again, prematurely separate mom and baby to save mom's life is rapidly shrinking. But ectopic pregnancy is one um, very clear example of that. So for ectopic pregnancies, they occur in about two to 3% of all pregnancies. So again, not common, but not really what I would say rare either, you know, two to 3% is a, a decent number of pregnancies. Um, but we have treatment available for that. Again, that's not an abortion. Um, there are some other conditions again that are that are rare, but they do happen. So something like um, a condition called chorioamnionitis, which is an infection in the in the uterus uh, around the baby. The only way to treat that is to empty the uterus, which would be delivering mom. Um, if that happens again post viability, you can take care of baby. You can take care of mom. There's no issue there. The problem is when it's pre viability. Um, that then, you know, you deliver her knowing that your unintended consequence is that that child may not live. Um, but your intent of delivering her is not to end the life of that child. Your intent is to save her life. And she can be delivered in a way that leaves her baby intact and respects the dignity of that preborn child as well and gives her, you know, a child to hold and to grieve. And I've, I've been in the situation of taking care of a patient um, like that, you know, in that situation. And it's, it's a very difficult situation, but it can be done with compassion and care for both the woman and her child, um, even in a very difficult situation like that. So that would be another example. Um, you know, there are a few, there are one or two maternal cardiac conditions um, that still potentially require early separation of mom and baby. Um, and a very rare situation where preeclampsia develops pre-viability, where if you have no, um, if you can't control it in any other way, then delivery might be indicated. But again, these are exceedingly rare. These kinds of early deliveries are not happening in abortion facilities because these are cases where women are very sick. So these are happening in hospitals. Um, and these are not abortions. And, you know, never in my career have I walked into the room of a woman facing one of these situations and said, we need to do an abortion today. 
because it's not an abortion. The intent of an abortion is to end the life of that child. What I say to her is, you know, I'm very sorry, but I don't see any other way forward other than to get you delivered because you're, you know, your life is in danger because of this complication. Um, and, you know, again, still a very hard situation, but it's a delivery. It's not an abortion. It's done in a way that respects the, the dignity of that preborn child as well as the mother. Yeah. Such a great point. Um, so I saw that you guys on your website, you have a program for ab- abortion pill reversal. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's going to be like a bigger issue now? Absolutely. So it's extremely important, you know, already now, but especially moving forward too, that women know about the possibility of abortion pill reversal. So we know, you know, according to the latest data that came out from Guttmacher, um, medication abortions now represent more than 50% of all abortions in this country. Um, Depending on what happens with state laws moving forward, that number may very well increase. Uh, We have already seen the abortion industry push even before we get a decision in the Dobbs case, before we get a decision about what will happen to Roe, the abortion industry is already pushing for self-managed abortions, essentially. So, you know, medication abortions without really any medical oversight. And the FDA this past December uh, issued a ruling on the restrictions or the REMS that used to govern medication abortion and essentially lifted almost all of them. So now women can obtain them online. They don't have to be seen in person. It really is horrendous what the abortion industry is advocating for um, because it is significantly going to impact the health of women across the country. We're gonna see many more complications. Potentially we'll see women dying from these complications. Um, Because this is on the increase though, and because women now have more ready access to medication abortions, I think that the need for abortion pill reversal is gonna be even greater. We know that many women, after they take that first pill, they sort of feel this sense of relief because you know, initially because they feel like the crisis has passed. And then in that moment, they start to think a little bit more clearly. And when they do, what women have been telling us is that then at that point, they realize that that wasn't actually a decision that they wanted to make. And so that's when they can come to the abortion pill reversal network. Um, So we have a protocol available that just uses natural progesterone, which is a, a hormone that's naturally produced in the woman's body and that the abortion pill actually targets Uh, the production and the efficacy of that hormone. And so we replace that progesterone. And with that, according to our current data, we've got about a 68% success rate and over 3000 babies have been saved through abortion reversal so far. So it really is an amazing thing. And, you know, and an issue that people on both sides of the abortion issue should agree about because it's about giving women another choice. If they don't want to finish their medication abortion, this is giving them the choice and the ability to potentially save their child. And why anyone would be opposed to that really is beyond me. Now, are there a lot of places where people can get the reversal or is it pretty limited? So um, there is a actually a worldwide network now. So there are um, physicians in the UK, I believe in Australia. Um, there might even be other countries now of physicians providing this. Uh, we're all connected. I'm an APR provider. We're all connected through the APR network. And um, there are over a thousand um, physicians, the last time I checked, over a thousand physicians providing this. We are trying to encourage more physicians to provide it and giving them, that's part of what we're doing on our website um, at AppLog is providing them with information they need, questions, you know, answering questions they might have about, does this work? Is it safe? 
Um, how do I do this? And so we are trying to encourage more physicians because there are cases where women call the network and desire reversal where maybe the closest physician providing it is, you know, a hundred miles away or something like that. So, um, so we definitely need more physicians to be aware of this um, and to be trained in, in how to provide it. And it really is a very simple thing to do. And having delivered a patient with a successful reversal, you know, I can say to physicians that it's one of the most rewarding things that you'll do in your career. Um, for the pills that people are taking at home, um, in terms of the complications, what are some of the complications they could have? Yeah, so we know in general that medication abortions have a four times higher rate of complications than surgical abortions, which is not what women are being told. Women are being told this is easier than a surgical abortion. It's just as safe as taking Tylenol, but nothing could be further from the truth. The main complications that we see are hemorrhage or very heavy bleeding, um, infection, from either retained tissue related to the pregnancy, if, if the woman doesn't pass everything, or also because both of the medications involved in a medication abortion, both mifepristone and mesoprostol, both have a suppressing effect on the woman's innate immune system. And so just that immune suppression puts her at higher risk for infection. Um, and in the early years of um, medication abortion, it was found that women had a higher rate of in, a higher risk of infection from a bacteria called Clostridium, um, which could cause really severe sepsis. And so some of the some of the 24 deaths that have been um, documented, at least related to medication abortion, were related to infection. Um, and then the other complication that we see is incomplete abortion, where she doesn't pass everything. Um, we know that there's up to an eight percent. If, if a woman takes the medications within the time frame that it's approved for by the FDA, which is within the first 10 weeks of pregnancy, she has up to an 8% risk of needing to have a surgical completion. And that might have to be done emergently even, um, you know, if she's having really heavy bleeding. So, you know, 8% may not sound like a lot, but when you consider the number of medication abortions that are occurring every year in this country, which is, you know, depending on the numbers you look at, probably anywhere between four and 500,000, 8% of four to 500,000 is a big number. So this is a lot of women that are potentially going to need surgery. Um, and this is not being done by the abortion providers. Even for even when women went to an abortion facility to obtain these medications from a physician, even in that scenario, that highly controlled scenario, only about by reviewing the FDA adverse event reports, only about 40% of those women actually had their complications taken care of by the abortion provider. The remaining 60% had it taken care of in an emergency room, you know, possibly by a physician that they'd never met before who really didn't have, you know, good knowledge of, of the history of what the woman had been through. So, you know, this is not good care for women. This is sort of tossing women out on the street, giving them a dangerous, very dangerous medication lying to them, telling them that it's just as safe as taking Tylenol. It'll be just like having a heavy period. That's it. And then when they need taken care of, when they're having complications, um, you know, then just sort of leaving them on the side of the street or telling them that they can go to their local emergency room. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the other danger, real danger that we're seeing with women getting these medications without an in-person visit is that ectopic pregnancies are being missed 
Um, mm-hmm. So they're not having an ultrasound, which is dangerous because then we don't know exactly how far along they are. Um, but then also we're not making sure that that pregnancy is in the uterus. So medication abortion is not effective against ectopic pregnancies and the symptoms of an ectopic pregnancy as it's rupturing, which causes life-threatening bleeding in the woman's abdomen are abdominal pain and vaginal bleeding. Well, those are the exact same symptoms that women are told they're going to have with a medication abortion. And so, um, you know, we are already seeing cases of missed ectopic pregnancies where women are given these pills, and then they show up one, two, three weeks later in their local emergency room with a ruptured ectopic. And, you know, women are going to die from this. Um, And so again, this is an issue that people on both sides of the, of the abortion issue should be in agreement on that women deserve better health care than this. They deserve excellent health care and they deserve fully informed consent, which they are not receiving from the abortion industry or its allies. Okay. That is Such a good, I mean, so many amazing points that you are making that nobody is talking about. Um, Okay, so just a couple more questions. So I read an op-ed in The Atlantic from an abortion provider this week where she said she'd only done first trimesters, but now she just got trained for second because she's saying, oh, now there's going to be more second trimester abortions because it will be harder for people to get out of state to get their abortions. Um, I guess just what is your reaction to that and... Um, cause it, it was really like kind of troubling to me to hear that, wow, that's actually maybe true. <laughs> well, you know, I think that there will be many factors that, that play into that. Um, you know, we know that even now the, the Guttmacher, um, in one of their reports said that the, the main reason why women get second and third trimester abortions are actually the same reasons that they get first trimester abortions. So socioeconomic reasons, you know, feeling pressure from family, all of those sort of main reasons. So, you know, the, the narrative that people like to talk about that the reason people get second and third trimester abortions is different than the reasons they get first trimester abortions is simply not true. And even Guttmacher tells us that, mm-hmm. um, And so, you know, women in this country, at at least at this point in time, um, they know that abortion is an option. And if that's something that they want to choose, then at this time, they know where to go. That may change, you know, the landscape of where they can go to get an abortion may change. Um, But the facts of what abortion does to women don't change, regardless of if they are able to access abortion in their state or not. Um, And this is really, I think, the important point is that we need to, rather than saying, well, we should keep abortion legal in the, or, you know, we should allow abortion in all states so women can access it in the first trimester. What we really should be focusing on is talking to women about the dangers of abortion and the reality of abortion through all of pregnancy, including in the first trimester. So, um, you know, the risks of increased risk of preterm birth in future pregnancies from surgical abortions, the increased risk of mental health uh, disorders. We know that women who have abortions, even, even in an unplanned pregnancy situation, if you look at women who have abortions versus women who carried a term, they have a six to seven higher um, risk, six to seven times higher risk of suicide. Women need to know about that. That, you know, that pertains whether they have an abortion in the first trimester or the second trimester. Um, So women need to understand the risks associated with abortion and, um, and, and know, you know, the reality of what they're facing. And, um, you know, I, I think it remains to be seen um, what the decision from the court is going to be and, and what that does on a, on a state by state landscape. But, 
the bottom line is we know science tells us that that preborn child is a living human being from the moment of fertilization. And we know that abortion harms women regardless of the time in their pregnancy that it's done. And so, you know, for APLOG, we, you know, are certainly following what's happening on a legislative and a legal level, but our job as physicians is to make sure that our patients are fully informed. And so that's what we'll continue to focus on doing regardless of, of, you know, what happens on a state by state level. Okay. And then um, pretty much the last question I think is, so the, the last thing that, that comes up in this conversation is fetal anomalies and, and, you know, really tough diagnosis within the womb. And that's obviously like the hardest thing. And I can't imagine being in that situation. Um, but people use that to say, well, abortion saved my life when there was a fetal anomaly or like, you know, I had to have an abortion because my child had this, um, you know, their brain wasn't developing all of these different things. And I guess my question is, is abortion ever necessary with that kind of a diagnosis? And, or are these more like choices that women are making because um, they don't want to just proceed because they know the outcome? Sure. Um, So you're right. It is a very, very tough situation. And it's a situation I've been in with many patients, you know, who receive these adverse prenatal diagnoses. Um, I think the, my response to that would sort of be multifactorial. The first is that I think many women, many families choose the route of abortion in that situation because they feel pressured by their physician. So this is a conversation I've had with many of my patients or patients who have come to me with a subsequent pregnancy and maybe have, you know, chosen termination in a previous pregnancy or not, but said that they had a hard time finding a physician who would support their decision to continue the pregnancy in that scenario, Um, which is heartbreaking to me as a physician that a patient would feel that pressure. Um, And I think, you know, it comes out of our medical training um, that we are often taught that that's what women want, that that's the compassionate thing to offer them. And so I think many physicians offer that out of a sense of compassion for the woman, but then don't really help her to understand that there are other options. So one of the greatest things that has come about in the last probably 15 years or so, um, and actually was spearheaded by one of um, APLOG's former board members, Dr. Byron Calhoun, is the concept of perinatal hospice or perinatal palliative care, which offers these families a way of walking through their grief and helping them through the grief process of potentially losing their child. Um, and we know that that mental health outcomes are actually better for families who choose this option because they're able to acknowledge the dignity of the life of their child, even if that life is going to be very short. Um, and they're also able to walk through that normal grieving process that any family needs to go through when they lose a loved one. And so this is really the more compassionate thing to offer. But I think many women don't even realize that it's an option because their physicians don't talk to them about it, um, which needs to change. And, and my hope is that that is one thing that can come out of this discussion that we're having in this country is is that families deserve better than just being offered a termination in that situation. They deserve support uh, to walk them through that grieving process. The other factor in that is in this discussion around um, life-limiting diagnoses for these children, which I think is a much better term to use than some of the other terms that are thrown about um, for this situation, 
is that we lose sight of the dignity of that life. So even though that life might be very short, even though that child might have, you know, significant abnormalities that that we consider um, to not be compatible with life or something like that, that still is a living human being. And for that family, that's their son or that's their daughter. And our job as pro-life medical professionals is to help them to see the dignity of that child and help them to understand that whatever time they have with that child is precious and we can help them value that time. And I think the final point to make on that is that this, this, sort of these phrases that we throw around incompatible with life, life limiting diagnoses, um, you know, fetal anomalies, things like that. There's actually no gold standard of what constitutes a condition as a life limiting diagnosis or incompatible with life. So if you look at the medical literature, that term is applied even to conditions that have a 50% survival rate. Mm. Now, I don't know about you, but to me, that doesn't seem like a lethal anomaly. Yes, maybe that child has a high risk of their life being shortened, but 50%, a 50% survival rate. So when these terms are thrown around and families are made to feel like their only option is to, is to terminate, we need to also be very cautious about what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and just as a very quick anecdote to that, I currently have a goddaughter who, when I was taking care of her mom, her mom was my patient, she was given a less than 5% chance of survival of the pregnancy and basically a 0% chance of survival beyond delivery. Wow. She was offered termination by her high-risk specialist, which she declined. I took care of her throughout her pregnancy. We ended up delivering Grace when she was 33 weeks. She came out screaming, and she's now nine years old. Mm-hmm. And she had a, she was given essentially a 0% chance at survival. And so when we end these pregnancies prematurely, and I'm not saying that every pregnancy, you know, with, with a life limiting diagnosis is going to end up like that. You know, I, I fully acknowledge that many of these families are going to go through a loss, but when we end those pregnancies early through termination, through, you know, through elective abortion, how often I wonder, have we missed the opportunity to see a grace at nine years old, who is, you know, she has Down syndrome and she's had to have a couple cardiac surgeries, but she's doing great. She's the joy of her family's life. And how many families have missed out on the, that opportunity to have that time with their child simply because they've been misled, whether it be by their physician or by society or, you know, any other influence in their life. And so that would be my argument against why these are not needed. These, these, you know, second and third trimester abortions in the case of, of some sort of anomaly um, is because we have so many other better options. Mm-hmm. If a woman did find herself in the very rare situation where um, most, the, the most common that you would see, and again, this is still exceedingly rare would be severe preeclampsia in the, because of the anomaly that the baby has um, in that case, you treat her just like you would any other patient with severe preeclampsia. If she's after viability, you deliver her, you do what you can to take care of baby and you do what you can to take care of mom. So this argument that abortions are needed in the third trimester after these babies are viable outside of their mother is a complete and total lie and has no basis in science or medicine at whatsoever. Yeah, I, that's, that's the one that kills me. I'm like, I'm no doctor, but you know, right. we have the word viability for a reason. Right. Um, okay. So any, anything else that I didn't, ask you that might be helpful or that you're thinking of? I mean, I think, I think you covered it all, but I, you know, I think my sort of two top line points from this would be that 
abortion is not healthcare and women deserve better. And if they are going to choose abortion, at the very least, they deserve fully informed consent about the risks and the alternatives. Mm-hmm. And then the second would be that treating an ectopic pregnancy or a miscarriage is in no way the same as doing an abortion. And physicians will continue to be able to treat these potentially life-threatening um, situations, regardless of the laws in their state. Okay. Okay. I have a quick question. I wasn't going to do yeah. this, but this audio is so great. Like, would you mind if I use the audio on my podcast? No. Okay. Cause it's like basically a podcast episode and you're just saying so much that I want to get out there that I won't be able to put it all <laughs> in my story. So, um, that's fine with you though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, thank you so much. I think this is going to be so helpful for people. Um, and yeah, I just appreciate what you guys are doing and, um, I appreciate your time and I'm just excited to get some of this out there. Absolutely. Well, and since we're going to do that too, can I just add one more thing um, is that I would encourage um, anyone who, you know, hears something that sort of triggers Well, I've never heard that before. I've never thought in that way. Um, Or, you know, any medical professionals that might be listening, we have some amazing resources on our website that are fully sourced from the medical literature. So I encourage people not not to just take what I'm saying, you know, as truth, go to our website, look at the sources um, so that you can know for yourself. And um, so they can go to our website at aaplog.org under the resources tab. There's, there's um, several resources there that I think people find very helpful. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Erica. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.